Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children. Welcome to the Rebel Mothers Podcast. I'm your host, Susie Fishleader, and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation. Hello, welcome to another episode of Rebel Mothers. Today we're talking all about matrescence. So this episode is the first in a two-part series that is going to explore this idea of matrescence as a rite of passage, how birth in America today shapes our experience of motherhood, and what you can do to heal from a difficult birth or postpartum period, even if it's been years since you had your babies. So we're going to get into a full definition of matrescence shortly, but if you're unfamiliar with the word, it's basically the term for the transition into motherhood, including pregnancy, birth or adoption, and then the postpartum and newborn period, that whole transition. Uh, And we'll talk about a little bit more about that. So last week, we talked about how examining our personal motherline ancestry and uncovering the lost stories of women help us better understand where we learned how to be a mother. In this next step, we're planting the seeds of motherhood by learning how the period of matrescence and our experience of pregnancy, birth, and early motherhood is truly a rite of passage, even though it's not always celebrated like that. You know, our modern culture has no ceremonies to celebrate that incredible shift in the psyche that occurs when a person becomes a mother. Even though pregnancy and birth are life-altering events, there's no traditional ritual to welcome the new mother and baby into society. Instead, what happens often is the medicalization of that natural process of birth can often leave trauma in the nervous system that bears weight on your mothering journey, especially in the early days. So this is something that I cover in my coaching program, and when I work one-on-one with people, it's we. It, this is designed to help celebrate your transition to motherhood, whether you felt like your initial transition was appropriately celebrated or not. So in today's episode, I'm going to give you some background on what matrescence is, how this period of time shapes your motherhood experience. We're going to talk about what a rite of passage is, looking at some examples of how this period is celebrated around the world, and then we're going to look at how it's commonly experienced in America. So today's episode mostly focuses on the pregnancy and birth period, and then next week we'll talk more about the early postpartum days, and then also I'll give you some tips on how to revisit this period in your life, um, especially if there are parts that were negative or challenging, and how to reframe them into a more positive experience. So let's dive in. First, let's better understand what is matrescence because that word is becoming more popular, but it's still not really in common usage. And in fact, every time I type it somewhere, it comes up as a misspelled word. And then I have to go back and make sure that I spelled it correctly because a lot of people don't know it. I didn't know this word, even though I worked in prenatal yoga and postpartum spaces until I started studying motherhood a few years ago. So here's what it is. The best explanation I've heard about this period of time comes from Dr. Aureli Athan. I think that's how you say it. Uh, She's a clinical psychologist and faculty member at Columbia University. And in 2016, she wrote, quote, 
Matrescence, the term first coined by Dana Raphael, PhD, is a, del- is a developmental passage where a woman transitions through preconception, pregnancy and birth, surrogacy or adoption to the postnatal period and beyond. The exact length of matrescence is individual, recurs with each child, and may arguably last a lifetime. The scope of the changes encompasses multiple domains, bio, psycho, social, political, spiritual, and can be likened to the developmental push of adolescence. Increased attention to mothers has spurred new findings from neuroscience to economics and supports the rationale for a new field of study known as matrescence. Such an arena would allow the roundtable of specialists to come together and advance our understanding of this life passage. End quote. So knowing and using the term matrescence to talk about this period is not only, you know, a helpful addition to vocabulary, but it's really, it represents an ideological shift that can hold profound significance in understanding and supporting mothers, right? We already recognize that life stage of adolescence. We've all been through that period where we went through awkwardness and discomfort and mood swings and more. So by comparing and understanding matrescence as that same transition, it really helps to validate, you know, the emotional, physical, and psychological changes that mothers experience, and maybe it helps us to generate the same sympathy and grace for new mothers that we already extend to teenagers. So now let's talk about how the period of matrescence, that period of pregnancy, birth, and early motherhood transition, is a rite of passage. A lot of these ideas that I'm going to talk about were inspired by the book Birth as an American Rite of Passage by Robbie Davis Floyd, which really helped me to understand how our modern birthing rituals in America shape our experience of motherhood. And we'll get into this book more later in the podcast. But for now, let's understand better what a rite of passage means, because it's not something that in our culture we really talk about a lot. There's three stages involved, and then we're going to look at those stages in the through the lens of matrescence, okay? So traditionally, a rite of passage is a culturally significant ceremony or ritual that marks an individual's transition from one life stage or status to another. Think of things like weddings, quinceaneras, or sweet 16 parties, right? These ceremonies mark that significant transition in someone's life. So whether it's rooted in culture, religion, or just tradition, rites of passage serve as symbolic markers for significant milestones, and they really help embody the profound transformation that individuals can undergo. There are traditionally three stages in a rite of passage, which is a separation from the previous state, a transition phase, and ultimately an integration into the new identity or role. Okay, so we use ceremonies to kind of mark these celebrations, and that helps lend meaning and structure to the transitions that we experience. These ceremonies can offer times for reflection, self-discovery, and communal support. Really helps individuals navigate the complexities of change, you know, with a deeper understanding of their personal growth and cultural identity. So let's look at these three stages, separation, transition, and integration, and apply them to matrescence, okay? So stage one, separation. During this initial stage, this is kind of where, this is like pregnancy, okay? So the pregnant person experiences a profound shift in self-identity. As she becomes aware of her pregnancy, she starts to separate from her prior state of being. This is that maiden-to-mother transition. And this period involves a psychological and an emotional departure from her previous identity 
as she really grapples with the recognition that she is now an other, right? She's someone else. So the separation is not just physical, but it extends into the realms of emotion, belief, perceptions of self, right? The woman begins to navigate the complexities of her evolving identity and detaches from the familiar aspects of who she used to be. Okay, that's the separation phase. Stage two, pregnancy and birth, this is that in-betweenness, okay? The expectant mother is kind of existing in this liminal space. You're, you're not fully a normal member of society. You're not a mother, okay? The stage includes the birth experience and then also the immediate postpartum. So in this in-betweenness, you know, society may perceive her differently. She may herself grapple with the expectations and uncertainties, um, start preparing. It's that time of anticipation, preparation, and finding that balance between the old self and the emerging identity as a mother. And then the final stage, integration, is after the baby is born, you are now birthed as a mother. You are a new person. So this phase extends until the, the new mother feels a sense of resemblance to her previous self, albeit now with the added dimension of motherhood, right? So it encompasses the period post-birth as the woman adjusts to her role as mother, gradually integrating these new responsibilities, joys, um, schedules, you know, challenges into her sense of self. It's totally dynamic. It's a forward and back process. It's very, it's not linear. And it, you know, you're talking about self-acceptance, adaptations, and everything. And hopefully the new mother embraces her evolved identity and you can find harmony between her past self and the mother she's become. And I think because we have such a lack of ceremony for the new mother and baby, it's why a lot of women perhaps struggle with postpartum depression or that feeling of loss of identity and loss of self because we haven't adequately equipped these new mothers to celebrate this new person that they are, right? Okay, so on that note, let's take a look at how this rite of passage might be celebrated both globally and then we'll look at it in the U.S. So across the globe, different cultures have different ways of celebrating the birth and the postpartum period. You know, we're familiar with Native American blessing ways to honor the woman's spiritual journey into motherhood. In Southeast Asia, you'll find the practice of, I don't know how to say this, beng, beng kung, belly binding. It's the belly binding, right? As a traditional postpartum ritual. My gosh, I loved um, I had three C-sections and those C-section bands, oh my gosh, so helpful, right? So women having a ceremony to wear that tightly wrapped cloth around their abdomen and really provide support to those muscles and promotes healing is also seen as a symbol of care and restoration, okay? Uh, in Nigeria, there's the naming ceremony from the Yoruba culture. This is a postpartum celebration that typically takes place on the seventh day after the birth of a child and it involves naming the baby and offering prayers for the child's well-being. In India, the Ayurvedic practice of uh, the first 40 days after birth, at the golden, the golden 40 days, I think, it's this crucial time for a new mother to recover, restore her health. And during this time, there's specific guidelines and practices to support the mother's physical and emotional healing. So now let's turn to some of the common rituals surrounding birth and postpartum care in the United States. And then we're going to get into the book, Birth as an American Rite of Passage, to talk about how these rituals of birth in a hospital affect mothering. So 
During pregnancy, we do have some ceremonies that are pretty common. The two most common are the gender reveal party and a baby shower. And I think it's really easy to dismiss these, right? To dismiss the baby shower as simply reinforcing the capitalist baby industrial complex. But it might be the only celebration a pregnant woman receives. I really enjoyed my baby showers. I thought it was a lovely time to come together with other women, some who'd had babies, some who didn't, and I felt special and, and celebrated and seen. It was really nice, right? And then gender reveal parties are somewhat problematic, right? They're not really celebrating gender. They're focusing on the baby's anatomy. Also, if you Google gender reveal parties gone wrong, there are some horrifying stories out there. Um, but as much bad press surrounds these gender reveal parties, I think their rise in popularity speaks to how desperately we want to create meaning and ritual around the transformational processes of pregnancy and birth. We're just like seeking ways to connect with people. Some other traditions that you might find, you know, for birthing people who have enough money, they might hire a photographer for a maternity shoot or a newborn shoot, even labor and delivery photo shoot. Um, of course, if you have to choose, I would suggest hiring a doula to help during the labor and delivery and possibly with postpartum care if you had to choose between a doula and photographer. Some partners might present the birthing person with a push present as a gift to the new mother. Sometimes meal trains are organized. You know, the community does step up and, and help people out. So looking at birth, when it comes to giving birth in the United States, according to a 2020 paper, the vast majority, like 98.4% of mothers give birth in hospitals with just under 1% giving birth at home and about half of percent, 0.52% of mothers give birth in freestanding birth centers. Now that number has improved a lot. So as of January, 2022, there are currently 400 birth centers, which is more than double what it was a decade ago. So we're definitely seeing some improvement in options available for birthing people to choose where they have their babies. Now, when we moved birth into the hospital, I think it was believed that we were kind of leaving behind this, you know, primitive ritualistic process of birth that was full of superstition and we were embracing this more modern and industrial medical way of having a baby. However, in the book, Birth as an American Rite of Passage, anthropologist Robbie Davis Floyd clearly lays out how modern hospital births are actually full of rituals known as standard, obst standard obstetric procedures that, quote, effectively convey the core values of American society to birthing people and to transform the rite of passage of birth into an initiation rite that mirrors male, not female, rites of initiation in many cultures, end quote. She explains how, quote, in a sense, the birth process creates not just one, but four new social members, the new baby, the woman who is reborn into the new social role of mother, the person reborn as father or other parent, and the new family unit they form. Each must be properly socialized to ensure cultural continuity. But because mothers are generally the most responsible for socializing their children, their absorption must be so thorough that they cannot help but teach these systems of behavior and cognition to their children simply by their patterns of daily living. End quote. Okay, she goes on to list... So she lists out several examples of these standard obstetric procedures, and it kind of explains both their official rationale, like why the hospital says this is why we do what we do, 
and then also explains the physiologic effects and the ritual purposes these procedures can enforce. So I'm not going to list them all today. Um, there's a lot. If any of you have given birth in a hospital, you probably are familiar with a lot of the ones that she talks about. I am going to give some examples and just a heads up trigger warning. I'm not, I'm not going into any kind of horrifying details about some of the atrocities that some women do experience in hospital births, births, but if you did experience birth trauma and you are triggered by examples of procedures like cervical checks, you may just want to skip ahead a few minutes. Okay. So the first example she gives, she starts with a practice of putting laboring women into a wheelchair when they enter the hospital, right? You pull up, you get out, you walk up to the desk, you say, I'm in labor, and they say, great, here's a wheelchair, okay? The rationale behind this procedure is that, you know, the, the hospital is worried that the woman might faint or stumble and fall, you know, hurting either herself or her baby and making the hospital vulnerable to lawsuits. But as a ritual, placing a healthy woman in a wheelchair associates her body with a powerful symbol of disability. Quote, Although she may reject this message on a conscious intellectual level, its passage through her body and into the right hemisphere of her brain will guarantee that on an unconscious level, she will receive the message, you are disabled, end quote. Another example of routine procedures is the practice of cervical checks during labor. This procedure where a nurse or physician inserts gloved fingers into the laboring woman's vagina typically happens shortly after she arrives to determine how dilated her cervix is, right? They want to know how far along is she in her labor process. And it will continue to happen occasionally throughout her labor, sometimes as frequently as every half an hour, so that they can determine how close she is to delivering her baby. So the official rationale for this process is that it allows the hospital personnel to determine how many centimeters the cervix is dilated, how far it is effaced, and to measure fetal descent. However, cervical exams are often performed without consent and without explanation. Uh, when I was in labor in 2009, my labor was induced and it lasts 24 hours long. There were several times that my midwife announced that she was going to check my cervix, but never once did she ask my permission or explain why she was checking it, right? She just said, okay, I'm gonna check you now. And I just rolled with it. It was like, yeah, check me. But it sure would have been nice to have been able to give a little bit of consent, you know, in hindsight, that's never something I even prepared myself for. Because every cervical exam increases the possibility of maternal infection, it can cause heightened maternal tension and anxiety, and it can disrupt the natural rhythm of labor, right? And then as Davis Floyd points out, from a ritual perspective, quote, Frequent cervical checks drive home to the laboring woman the physical significance of the messages about the importance of time, about the suspected defectiveness of her own body, and about her lack of status and power relative to the hospital staff in the institution. More than any other standard procedure slash ritual, unnecessary cervical exams demonstrate the power that the techno-obstetric profession holds over the laboring person's body and its ability to invade that body when it pleases. End quote. So those are just two examples. I'm sure if you had birth in a hospital, you can think of many more. Uh, this book was really a powerful read for me. In summary, she's able to demonstrate, quote, that the pregnancy and childbirth process has been culturally transformed in the USA into a masculinized initiatory rite of passage through which women receive messages about the superiority, the necessity, and the essential nature of the relationships among science, technology, patriarchy, and institutions, 
end quote. Basically, birth rituals in America are designed to imprint our country's patriarchal, colonized values onto mothers during their most tender and vulnerable moments so that they can carry them on and teach them to their children. Okay, I do want to acknowledge that most of what I've described so far in this episode is perhaps a typical pregnancy and birth experience for what could be considered the dominant cisgender, white, able-bodied, and heterosexual culture in America. So I want to take a moment to address briefly what this experience might look like for some marginalized identities. What does pregnancy and birth and, you know, matrescence look like if you're not cisgender, white, or heterosexual? Well, for black women in America, the period of matrescence unfolds uniquely due to the intersecting factors of systematic inequalities, racial disparities in healthcare, and the complex history of racial trauma. Black women often face disproportionately high rates of maternal mortality and morbidity, which makes the entire experience of matrescence you know, intricately woven with the challenges of navigating a healthcare system that may not adequately address their specific needs. Moreover, the historical context of racism and the persistent racial wealth gap can impact the support systems available to black mothers. Right? Culturally, black women may draw strength from rich traditions of communal support and spirituality, which play a significant role in shaping their maternal journey. But recognizing and addressing these distinct aspects of matrescence for black women is crucial for fostering maternal well-being. Dismantling systematic inequalities and creating a more equitable and supportive environment for the dispersed, diverse experiences within motherhood. It's important for those of us who work directly with mothers to take into account the many intersecting identities that absolutely affect our everyday lived experiences of mothering. I'm going to include a list of resources in the show notes on, on my podcast page on my website about how to better support mothers with historically marginalized identities through their own personal period of matrescence. Matrescence for Native American and Indigenous women will likely include diverse cultural traditions that are rooted in ceremony and affected by the historical trauma stemming from colonization. The resilience of Native American women and Indigenous mothers is profound, and extended family networks and guidance of community elders emphasize the importance of community support and cultural practices, right, that kind of celebrate this profound bond between a woman and her child and the natural world. For disabled mothers, the stages of matrescence can be a process of separating from preconceived social expectations, including navigating accessibility barriers, confronting potential biases in healthcare, and adapting parenting strategies to accommodate diverse abilities. So during pregnancy, a disabled mother might encounter unique considerations related to physical accommodations and support, right? Uh, transgender mothers or birthing people experience a really deeply personal journey that transcends conventional narratives of motherhood, okay? The process involves navigating the complexities of gender identity, um, also social expectations during these transformative stages, right? Her, their separation entails not only a shift in identity related to motherhood, but also a nuanced exploration of their relationship with gender, they might have unique considerations like fertility treatments or assisted reproductive technologies. So really, you know, transgender mothers contribute to a redefinition of maternal experiences. And then if the mother is lesbian or otherwise identifies as queer, she navigates her own process that can involve fostering perhaps a non-biological maternal bond, 
building supportive communities that are attuned to diverse family structures, and actively engaging with LGBTQ plus parenting networks. So all of these kind of historically marginalized identities as mothers contribute to a redefinition of maternal experiences, right? We have defined the normative mother in society. Andrea O'Reilly has defined it as, I'd have to find the quote somewhere, but basically white, married, cisgender, you know, heterosexual, able-bodied, all the things. But when we have a broader narrative that embraces the diversity of gender and and what a mother looks like and who a mother is, it really can reinforce that resilience, that strength and authenticity inherent in every person's journey through matrescence. Okay, so that's it for today, Rebel Mothers. I hope this episode has you reflecting on your own pregnancy, birth, and postpartum experience, or if you're someone who supports mothers, how you can support them through this journey, no matter how conflicting or complex it might be. Um, Because this is how motherhood begins. This is where the journey starts. So next week, we will talk about ways to rewrite your matrescence if it wasn't the empowering and nourishing experience it's supposed to be. I'll see you then. Stay tuned for more empowering stories and insightful discussions in future episodes of Rebel Mothers. Remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to spread the message far and wide. Learn more at suzyfishleader.com. And thank you for being part of the motherhood revolution.